0: Welcome to Trauma from the Frontline. My name is Bruce Perham. I'm a counsellor who has provided counselling and training to correction officers and frontline responders for over 15 years. In this series, I will be interviewing a wide range of psychologists who work in the trauma field, key stakeholders in the emergency sector, and frontline workers who have experienced mental health and at times trauma reactions due to the field in which they work. Hi, this is Bruce Parham from Trauma from the Frontline. Today, I have a guest, Dr. Laurie McKinnon. Um, Laurie is a a PhD social worker and has a master in social work. Um, Over the last decade, Laurie's focus um, has turned to working with trauma. She um, integrated several approaches to develop her own model called Radical Exposure Tapping, RET, for rapidly resolving disturbing memories and symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Look, thank you, Laurie, for agreeing to come and talk to me. I've been really looking forward to um, talking to you. If you could just give me a little bit of a background as to um, your early work and what sort of led you into the field of working with people with trauma um, experiences.
1: Well, if I look back retrospectively, uh, I've probably always worked with people with trauma I probably just didn't know in the early stages that I was, and that's probably true of a lot of therapists. So we probably, you know, even when you don't know that you're working with trauma, you're probably working with trauma. But in terms of actually trauma as, as kind of big T trauma, that that is something that more I came to, uh, to want to work with later on. I, I guess the thing for me is that, I mean, The basic thing for me is that I feel like I've always really been a therapist and I've always been somebody who has tried to understand what, when I've learned an approach to therapy, to try to dismantle that, to try to understand how does it work and how, when I dismantle it, how does it look to me differently than the people who are proposing about how it works. And that's, so I've been through many models of therapy in that process. And that's also led me into also training other therapists. So I've always had this kind of drive to understand how something works and then to try to figure out the elements of it in a way that I could describe to other therapists so that they could learn how to do it and to kind of sift through what is actually unnecessary parts of the model as opposed to what are the kind of succinct parts that if you learned how to do well you'd be good at it and so that's taken me you know over 30 years various models of therapy and really how I got to trauma in the end was just that I had done that to a number of other models of therapy and I get bored and I so I'm always looking to learn something new and then at some one point I uh, came across what well, I've known about eye movement, Uh, desensitization and reprocessing when it was first when it first came through Australia in the 1990s but I wasn't very interested in that at the time because it was very expensive to do and it was kind of promoted as something to help people who were sexual abuse survivors or war veterans and I didn't feel like I worked with many people like that so I didn't do the training Uh, and I just kept doing my other stuff uh, but eventually because I'm always looking for something new to do I went to uh, I was in, at the evolution of psychotherapy conference in LA and there was some big time presenters up there including Vandico who then talked about eye movement desensitization or processing and basically said that he thought that if you were working with trauma and you hadn't trained in it that it could be considered malpractice it was that good and so I sort of questioned myself about not having done the training before so that kind of opened my mind to it and then at that same conference uh francine shapiro was also there and she talked about it and she said that she had originally thought that it was only good for big t trauma but had since discovered it was very good for bullying and you know workplace difficulties and kind of the bread and butter of, of everyday practice and i thought well that's what i do so that kind of then inspired me to go and do training in emdr which i did And I had some good results with that. Uh, And in that process, kind of realized, you know, how I'd kind of dismissed it unnecessarily before. And then someone then told me later on, another colleague that I respected, told me about the emotional freedom technique and said that they'd had very good results with that. And I thought that was really hokey pokey kind of stuff. But I thought, well, I was wrong with about EMDR, so maybe I'm wrong about VFT. So I went off and learned that. So I learned the, the two things, kind of one after the other, and then did my usual process of dismantling them and trying to understand how they worked, and then thought, well, what happens if I combine elements of it? Because the thing for me as a, as a therapist is that I train a lot of the therapists, and, and EMDR is very restrictive in who can do the training for it. And so I thought, well, if there was a way of combining some of the good elements from EMDR with aspects of EFT, then it would be something different, so it wouldn't be restrictive in terms of teaching it. So that was my motivation initially to do that. And But what I discovered in doing it as well was that I, in doing that, I got the rigor that was in EMDR in terms of a process. Uh, but the there was things about the emotional freedom technique that, allowed me to feel like I was much more connected with my clients. And, and there was they just seemed to change faster. So when I put the two things together, the tapping technique or VFT, along with the kind of more rigorous protocol with EMDR, it just seemed like people were changing really fast to me. And I could then put that, make that uh, a process that I could teach other people. And so that then became what became radical exposure tapping. So in, in, partly in those the- two.
0: In the looking at, at some of the um, earlier models that, that you looked at, um, what, what sort of deficiencies or what didn't really connect with you as a way of working with trauma? The, it sounds like you kept looking for something that you could connect with, um, with your clients. Any comments on what you felt didn't work with some of the other approaches?
1: In terms of trauma, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, well, I see. I think until I got into EMDR and EFT, I didn't actually specialize in trauma, so I wasn't looking for something to solve right. trauma. I was just doing my usual private practice, which involved the whole, you know, bunch of different things in terms of presentations. But I think, in retrospect, uh, what I, you know, what I didn't have in those days was a very clear-cut way of helping people resolve intensely painful bad memories and and I think that you know the kind of usual not usual the talk therapies that don't focus specifically on memories and activating those memories don't have a way of getting over that quickly and so now in retrospect I can see that uh there are when I finally figured out how to do all this stuff, I wanted to call up everybody I'd ever seen in the previous 20 years and say, you know, if you want to come back, and <laughs> let's do it again. right? I'll another go. Now I know how to help you with some things. And in fact, the funny thing is I've actually had that happen spontaneously with a couple of clients who did come back to me some 20 years later and then experienced me in a different sort of way. But so I think the thing is that what is missing from models that don't work very effectively with trauma is the ability to... Identify and activate the memory, and then have a way of moving the person through that, so that quite quickly they come to a place where that memory gets sorted in the brain in a different sort of way, so that it it's no longer active in a in an emotional sense.
0: Look, that makes enormous sense to me, and um, you know, as someone that's uh, done a lot of work through um, EAP. EAP, Employee Assistance um, Provider, which is is diverse, um, you know, you often get to a point where you think, I really kind of don't know what I'm doing. Uh, You know, like you're having conversations with people and you're certainly hearing the stories. But, you know, I've kind of learned exactly that, that you get to a point where you just don't understand enough about what's happening for people to be able to, I guess, in a way, take that leap into okay, well, let's really sit down and work with this in a in a constructive way. Is that what you sort of came to? Okay, the, in doing the EMDR and the and, and then developing um, the radical exposure tapping. That hang on, this is a way that I can really work with people in in these situations.
1: Yeah, I, well, I guess what happened is that I realised that there's a lot of things that can be processed in that way. That I that I. Previously, I probably would have talked to people and they would have felt somewhat better. But I can now do kind of in 10 sessions what might have taken me 100 sessions before to accomplish, right? So people can, you know, people will go through a process of resolving so many intensely painful and uh, kind of memories that have formed them. And they can resolve that, so quickly that they will say that they feel like they're a different person, that they, you know, that they have transformed in some way. And I think that's quite different than than how I used to experience mm. doing therapy. So what what's
0: happening, do you think, that allows people to? Um, or, well, maybe tell us a bit more about um, RET and 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 how yeah. how it facilitates that.
1: I, I mean, and RET is not the only therapy that yeah. does that. I mean, many. Th- Many therapies that uh, process trauma using a focus on memories can do that. But it has to be, I think it's two components. has to be, that it has to have a method for accessing the memory. So you have to know what it is you're looking for as the therapist. So when the person tells you the story, what are you actually going for? And then you have to have a way to actually get them to activate the memory. And that's what I think the beauty of EMDR is and was, is that it has a methodology of actually. So when the person has a trauma, there's a way to ask them questions that, in answering it, they are actually, actually activating the memory network associated with that. So it, I think, in normal kind of life, people like traumatic memories are incredibly painful, and so we do all we can to avoid activating them and to <clears throat> to to not be triggered by it. Uh, PTSD memories anyway, because they're overwhelming. And so the avoidance of it means that people don't then habituate to it in some ways. So in therapy, if what you have a way of actually activating the memory, which means that you have to ask them the questions that bring back the the memory network of that trauma. So what it is the person sees, what it is they feel in their body at the time, when not just what they say they felt at the time but what they feel at the time right in this moment right now here with you as they talk about it and then the negative thoughts they have about themselves so those things if you ask them those questions then you have a way of actually reactivating the memory so they feel like it's kind of happening again right now and when you've got that if you pair that with something that is quite different then I mean, there's theories about memory reconsolidation that say that if you can do that in a way that does something very different with the brain at that time. So in my my model, it's a way of of tapping at the same time. So the person has got this memory completely activated, and then they have to concentrate in the present with me, following along while I'm saying the words that the keywords they've said, and I'm tapping on parts of myself, and they're copying me tapping similarly so the brain's very busy in the present trying to copy me while it's also activated this and that i think is overwhelming to your working memory and i mean this is partly just theory we don't know for sure but then something will shift and when that shifts then you can have almost you know very quickly you can have a big switch from that the emotional intensity can just drop back So they can tell the story about what happened to them, but no longer feel the intensity, intense emotional stuff, but it feels like it happened long ago. So I think if we were able to wire up the brain, what we would see is probably that initially when you're talking about it, there's activation in the limbic system and that afterwards you don't have that activation. You've got basically it's being stored in a way that an ordinary memory is stored.
0: Are you able to put into words what you think is happening at that, that time? Because you'd be sitting with people where that's happening. And I guess it's a question a lot of people would ask, well, what is actually happening that allows that memory to, almost from the sound of it, lose its power? Or What, what words can you put to what, what you think is happening for people?
1: You mean that I would say to a client, or that? Well, or just myself, what your what sense of it
0: is of of in in the process of what you are doing, mm-hmm. and and then the changes that you yeah. can see. What you know is it? Yeah. What, what are you? Well, how,
1: about I what? It to, how I say how I to myself <laughs> is that I I think that the that our our brains our minds have uh, are predisposed to being able to heal naturally, given the right. chance, and the chance is that you have to actually bring into the present the memory. So you have to react, you have to re-experience whatever it is you're trying to avoid experiencing. You've got to experience that in the moment right now, not talk about it, but actually re-experience it. Mm. And then you have to stay with that. And then ideally, I think in the presence of a caring, compassionate therapist, that's the other thing, dimension to it, because I don't, really think you can do trauma processing on yourself very successfully anyway. I think it's the, the process of that here is this most awful memory that is totally flooding me right now. And I'm in the presence of a caring, compassionate therapist who makes me feel safe right now. And we're doing something right now that is really hard to concentrate on because it's so, you know, have to concentrate in the present moment with it. So I think those things then do something, to allow that release in, you know, in the amygdala or wherever it is, that that memory, the emotional memory is stored so that you still have the story about what happened to you. So in your hippocampus, the story is stored. Mm. But in the amygdala, that part releases and relaxes. And so you then see it as... People say right away, they say, it feels farther away. It feels like it happened a long time ago.
0: So is that sort of... um is that a processing of it or is that, um, yeah, what is it? Is it, you know, just allowing the brain to refocus or?
1: Uh, it's not just refocus. No, you, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, there is actually a, an emotional process that happens, right? Um, I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I, I wouldn't, you know, i I'm grasping at straws to try to explain it myself. Uh, the, but certainly something, it seems like something very physiological happens. And the, the closest probably I've come to understanding it would be through the theories of memory reconsolidation, you know, which says that if you, you, can, if you bring the memory activated in the present and that something unusual happens at that time, that that memory, when it gets restored, gets restored in a different form.
0: Because, mm. uh, you know, um, often there's, you know, lots of people, there's lots of um, confusion around trauma memories and you'll have people say, well, don't, for God's sake, don't bring them back, um, just leave them where they are and, 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 and don't go there in, in psychological first aid and um, a lot of the, uh, what I'd probably call pretty simplistic approaches to it. But um, so that, that, I really connect with that sense of you're bringing it back, but you're bringing it back in the safety of someone that can really work with you on that. For your clients, is it sort of a bit of a leap into the unknown? I mean, is it sort of, well, I need to trust you to enter into this process? Uh,
1: do they have to trust me to go
0: into it? Or, or, or to, because I'd imagine um, a lot of people wouldn't know what it is, or wouldn't, you know, a lot of people say, maybe well, what well, what's, what's EMDR, or um, okay. that will have trauma of maybe starting to look at, you know, I'd like to get some help with it, but really don't know, it's part of the idea of the podcast, but really don't know where to turn, mm. or, or should I do EMDR, well, I have to say, well, I, I don't know enough about it to be able to give you any advice in terms of whether you should or you shouldn't, but So my sense is this: there is a lot of people don't know and don't know what the therapies are and then, of course, don't know how they're going to cope with it. So I guess that was a long-winded way, but um, are people apprehensive when they first contact you and go, I'm not sure what you're going to do?
1: Oh, well, it depends how they get to me. Uh, So I think there'd be a number of people who are referred from psychiatrists or doctors, and, and that who tell them up front to go and see me and that I will do tapping with them. So they you contact me and they say, my doctor says I need tapping from you. You know, so so they're they're not apprehensive. They are already, they're already sold ready. By, yeah, yeah, they're so yeah. So the <clears throat> the more difficult part would be if someone comes to me through, from some other route, doesn't know what I do, uh, but that it's pretty clear to me that they're traumatized and that the most efficient thing would be for me to, to do this with them. So then then it it's weird, right? So you have to explain it to them in some way. And and usually then I go through a process of telling them that there's, you know, different ways of dealing with this kind of thing. And one way is kind of talk therapy. It tends to take a long time and people don't necessarily get completely resolved with it. And another way is doing something that is quite unusual that involves accessing the memory and then doing something at the same time that tends to disrupt it. And that if they're, you know, if they're wanting to do something that is more efficient and a faster way of doing it, then this would be the way to do it. But it's a bit weird. And are they up for that? And I guess the thing is, what sells most people is that most people want to get better quickly. They don't Mm -hmm. want to spend a lot. They don't want to spend a lot of money, and they want to get well fast. So if they can do that efficiently, then they're willing to try something. And I guess the thing is that. It's, it's something that uh, once I do it with them, then we know pretty quickly whether or not it's going to be useful to them. And for most people it is. And so it's the experience of it that then makes them want to do it.
0: Can you tell me a bit more, Laurie, just in terms of the role of the tapping? Is that, I think you sort of commented, it has the brain doing two things at once. Tell me a bit more about what, what the tapping actually does.
1: does. Uh, not very much <laughs> it doesn't really do very much although it's pretty central in the sense that um, so I think that uh, the actual I don't believe I don't think there's research to show that that what you're doing is tapping on meridian points and that it's the meridian points that make any difference I think you could do a number of other things and, and EMDR does do something which is eyes mm-hmm. but it isn't you know an EMDR says it's the bilateral movements that do that, whether that's the eyes or the you know hearing or whatever. And in fact, it isn't because you could. There's lots of different things that you could do that would have the same impact. So the critical bit is actually being able to have the skill as a therapist to be able to know what memory to go for and how to access it, how to get the person to re-experience it in the room. Once you've got that, then something that involves them having to concentrate in the present. In the presence of a caring compassionate therapist is going to be the important element there so whether that's eye movements from emdr that's tapping or that's um this therapy that uses counting there's lots of different things that you could do that would have the same impact so the thing that i like about the tapping is that it's it gives us both something to do and it's complicated enough that the person has to concentrate Whereas if it was something that they could do kind of by rote, it wouldn't it wouldn't involve them having to focus as much. So by the concentrating, when they have to focus where I'm tapping next and they have to then tap. And even someone who has done it many times doesn't know when I'm actually going to move my hand to the next bit, doesn't know the word I'm going to say next. They have to stay with me in the present to do it. So as I'm doing it, I'm going around in a sequence and I'm saying keywords that I have written down when I ask them the questions to activate the memory. So I'll be saying, and, and, and thing about that as well is the whole process of the tapping part only takes a few minutes. And during that time, they can't talk to me about anything else or any other ideas, they have to kind of hold to that, but they will be, thinking different and things will pop into their mind and they just kind of stay with that until we get around to this part and I say what comes up. And at that point they can tell me anything that they have reassociated to. So sometimes it, they just do I say, I feel fine. I feel completely better. It's gone. Uh, but often they will then say, now I'm remembering something else or now I feel something else. And then we take that and just take that back into the process.
0: It's fascinating, you know, because it's obviously it's, people connecting with their own body, isn't it? So you, you're tapping yourself in the process of being in the present. Um, and with, with, you know, I think the point that you make, which is critical with a, someone that really is a therapist and is doing yeah. it therapeutically. Yeah. Um, and that the tapping is in a way a small part of that. The core part is the therapeutic skill. Um, what in, in terms of with the frontline... Respond to occupations where there's continual um, exposure to you know it's not a, a trauma memory that that happened many years ago and hasn't happened since where it's every day or every mm-hmm. weekly exposure to trauma. Have 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 those you know people in those professions come to you for that are still maybe working in the field or have just left the field but have PTSD and
1: uh, I've had a few, not nearly. What you have uh i've had a few i think the the thing that's been interesting there is that often when people are traumatized in the present so with one man that i worked with who was a, a first responder the thing he had personally had a loss some years earlier of a, a close person to him that he couldn't save and and he was with when she died so there was then time so some of the things that he then presented to me to work on which were of recent once we started working on we floated back and he went back to that memory so the thing about trauma in the present is that it is usually a double whammy because it's often re-triggering things that happened to you when you were either when you were young or when you were earlier in your life and the I mean, people do some incredible jobs, so it, it, it's hard to, to imagine how someone could do some of the jobs that mm. you, you know about that I've heard about without being traumatized. But I think some people do, because they do it they feel a sense of competence and capability, and they help others, so that they don't actually get PTSD from it. Some of the people who get the worst PTSD from it it's because it's actually re-triggering other things that have happened. So even, you know, people who go to war, things like that, the people who come back, most traumatised, usually had childhood trauma as well. So you've got an, a layering of, of things that have happened and that's much worse for them.
0: Yes, yeah, so I was just going to say yeah. from a therapeutic point of view, does that then um, sort of in in a way it becomes more, more complex because of the mingling of you know, I've had the trauma of what I've just been through and, but it's connected to other traumas that, you know, sometimes people aren't aren't aware of. Um, it, does that make it a more complex process because there's just so much going on and it's everyday exposure uh, as well?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, to me, it's not more complex. It's, it's typically complex. <laughs> Com- yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I would expect that someone who comes to me in a, in a high risk kind of position who's traumatized probably has had other things in their life that have traumatized them so it's not to me unexpected that's to me the bread and butter right it's it's typical that if you were traumatized earlier that you're going to suffer more later when you're in a, a situation like that so i expect that people who come to me who are traumatized now probably have had childhood or later on trauma as well that's going to have to be dealt with and so it's um
0: it's just part of the complexity of it. Yeah. So, so in in yeah, you know, it's all all complex as as you said. And um, so, in in the context of you know, like the, the first responders and and the type of trauma that they deal with, um, then sort of in a way, you know, one of the things that you know I talk to a lot of people about is well, how do we support people to um, sort of minimise the the psychological um, uh, challenges or damage or whatever we want to call it when they do this type of work. Um, Any thoughts around what what would help people when they're in that sort of situation of where it has connected with other trauma? Because often people don't recognise that or don't understand that and connect it to the here and now. Um, what should we be doing for people to maybe support them when they, you know, hit hit those moments, like when you go into the military or the police where you, you know you're going to be exposed to trauma? Um, maybe you don't fully understand it, but you know, you know that it's a part of the job. Mm-hmm. At, at that level, could we be doing more to... Oh, Help people work out well, where are they vulnerable. I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking. Mm. Really, but,
1: well, I'm, um, I'm certainly not an expert in those areas, so I, you know, no. don't want to step outside my expertise to say how it should be done. But I guess the one thing that I have heard uh, of people, in, you know, in the police or whatever, is that there there can be a stigma about acknowledging that you're traumatized, and I think that's the big problem. So if there's a stigma mm. and they're not allowed to actually get help, then when they are triggered they're trying to cope with it and sometimes cope with it for years and years yes. rather than being offered the help so if it if it was acknowledged that of course for many people if not most people that sooner or later they're going to be triggered by something because and it will have it'll be complex it'll be complex because of things that happened to them and that's okay and they should be offered you know confidential professional help for that and and see that as part of the journey rather than leaving them so long that they burn out and then have to leave their profession because they're, you know, they can't take it anymore. So I think mm-hmm. that that's the, the worst of it is that the stigma about getting help or showing that you're vulnerable means that people leave it longer than they should. So they're multiplying the the trauma that they're getting before they get the help to resolve the, the earlier yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah, and, and that's our major challenge, isn't it? And uh, to to normalise the fact that you might need to get help or that, that in any type of work you can be re-triggered back into, um, uh, you know, childhood um, trauma. Um, some comments around anecdotally, you know, how people have described th- the experience and and your thoughts around the um, the post, you know, having gone through, through the therapy. Um, what sorts of things have people said to you about how it, impacted on their lives
1: i will i yeah um people i guess <laughs> it depends on you know the degree to which they were traumatized before they came in i mean one of the things that i do is i give um, a standardized tooth questionnaire standardized questionnaires pre and post and then often during the process to just monitor where we're going and i i do that because when I was first working with this, I couldn't believe sometimes the changes that I saw in people it was just like, could, I, could this be real? Am I just projecting onto this? And what's interesting for me with that is actually to watch the changes. So, you know, I have people who are referred from psychiatrists who, where they've had, you know, were, had childhood trauma, and they might be in their middle years now, and they score, you know, really high on the indicators for ptsd so if the so if the cutoff is 33 and they're scoring 56 you know mm-hmm. and often within a few sessions they're down to 30 and then by the end of therapy they're down to 25 or whatever so they're totally within the normal range and some of them uh will go off and then i've sometimes occasionally will come back to me for, to deal with something else and then i give them the test again and the people who who get below 35, whatever, um, and when they come back and they do the test again, they're still there. Right, So they might have another issue to deal with in life and they need therapy for it, but they're not in a PTSD range anymore. Mm.
0: So, so is that, yeah. that um, a self-learning, you know, that when you go through that process and you connect with it, and I guess you get confidence in, um, well, I can be a bit more liberated from... Some of those sort of memories that there's just some self-learning in there. People learn to know what they need to do when they when they have these experiences.
1: Well, uh, so I guess it depends what you mean if by these experiences if you're talking about.
0: Uh, well, they, you know, we'll, we'll say like a, a either a trauma is retriggered or a different trauma is well, triggered, don't or you get re-
1: they don't get retriggered by the traumas we've worked on. That's the thing. Yes. So, so they because it's not a it's not a top down kind of talking themselves through something, it's actually a release of it, which means that, you know, they tell me, well, I, I drove through the area where my father used to live, or I drove where that old school was, you know, I didn't feel anything. Right? They, they don't get triggered anymore. So they don't, it's not a matter of talking themselves or helping themselves. It's, they've just experienced life in it with a kind of a clean slate in terms of that. So that's not it's not getting retriggered. It doesn't, now that doesn't mean that, you know, that someone, who, that someone comes and I necessarily get through their whole life and work out everything and then they're totally mm-hmm. done for good. So sometimes they might make some process uh, and then maybe something else happens that then re-triggers something else that we didn't get to and then they might come back to me. But the things that we work on that we get down to Zero, in essence, what I say, zero, which is they have no negative thought about it, no bodily sensation about it. right? They And it's it's a neutral kind of picture. They get, If they get down to zero with that, they stay at zero. They don't get retreated. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But then I get to, there might be other things in life that could happen, something else could happen to them. They might have a car crash and that might remind them of something else and they come back to me to work on that. It,
0: well, that must just have huge impact for people that um – you know, it, once you've brought that, that down, you don't go back or, or – and I, I guess I was partly thinking of, of say, in, in the work scenario or correction officers that I work with where, um, you know, they have a prisoner suicide in, in custody and then, you know, there's the, there's the trauma of that and then the, where that might connect with suicide elsewhere – um, in their life or often people say, my, my brother committed suicide or, yeah. you know, they, they, they'll connect with um, people that they know in their own lives that have committed suicide um, and then work through that in, in a therapeutic sort of way. But then, you know, six months later they go in and another prisoner suicided or or so that they're re-exposed to a different trauma but the same,
1: same thing. type of
0: trauma, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they, how do you put it, whether when it happens again, they might be in a better place to understand reactions to it, having been through the therapy first time around. Does that make sense?
1: I would see it differently, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So but how will I it is, see will, will it, it be if, helpful? Say, say, let's take an example of, say somebody had, when they were 18, their 16-year-old brother committed suicide, mm-hmm. then they're working in this context, and they see some, a prisoner suicide. Right? Then they come to you because they're, you know, really activated and very distressed. They don't actually necessarily even connect it to their brother. But as you as you, they're working with me anyway, I'll be making a list of the things they've been through. One of which would be their brother committing suicide. We end up working on that memory, and then we go back to the memory, the current memory of the prisoner suiciding and we work on that. So we've taken away the, we've, we've resolved the most painful aspects of what happened with the brother. So then, so then they go off, and then another prisoner commits suicide. When that happens, they're still faced with the awfulness of that, but no longer are they being re-triggered in terms of their brother. So it's no longer overwhelming in the same way. It's present rather than present and past together
0: yeah which which is really encouraging <laughs> for yeah. people you know I think it, it's um, just to have hope that I can work through these things or I can have experiences that help with that so that the implication of that might be that then as they continue to experience these things in in their work, distressing at the time but not not quite the intensity of the reaction yeah. Um, took me a while to get there, but <laughs> but um, it's just so important for people to under- understand, um, uh, because often people don't understand counselling, and and it has you know, people. It, it's <laughs> I don't know, it gets used in all sorts of different ways and people think that it's a lot of things that it isn't. Um, or and or it, people me, have had
1: bad experiences with counseling. Or
0: bad experiences of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, I rang the helpline once, but they were useless and I'm never going to ring them again. And, yeah. and if you want to avoid something, well, you know, that's what you feel. So it is that message of trying to, well, there is actually assistance available and, and, it, and it's helpful and, and it's a good experience to have. What are your thoughts about what we what we, what people really need when they're starting to to um, to have you know significant PTSD? What, what, how should we be responding to them?
1: Well, first of all, how would we know that they are having PTSD? I guess that would be the first thing. Is there any way of actually is anyone tracking them? Is anyone actually mm. checking in with them on a regular basis to know who's being traumatized? Because probably mm. I suspect that. You know, at least the the small experience I've had with with that is that the people who have come have often had years, sometimes decades of probably PTSD without anyone actually acknowledging it or getting help for it. So I think that would be the first thing is and, and then the problem of is there a way to track it and offer help? that doesn't mean that people are going to hide it from you because they're afraid of losing their job if they acknowledge I mean I think there's systemic problems because of that. Mm. So there's if there was some way to have a if there was some way to have some sort of parallel service available to people that they could access without it having implications for their job that would probably make a big difference. And then I think the thing is I, I talked to a, a man couple of months ago who um, had been caught in an elevator with 10 other people or something. And, and then like the thing froze and he couldn't, and it was really hot and he couldn't get out for two hours. And since then he's had these panic attacks. And this has been going on like for four or five years been having panic attacks. And I just happened to meet him in another social context. And I said to him, have you ever had therapy before? And he goes, no, it's like, it never. he never had the faintest idea that there was actually anything you could do that would make any difference to that. And I, I told him, you know, where to go, what kind of therapy to look up. And I said, and then the most important thing is when you go and meet that therapist, you know, make sure that you feel like you've got a good connection, you like the person. And it's like, wow, you know, the light bulb came on. It's like, I think for a lot of those, I mean, even for ordinary people, but for police and, and you know, where there's a lot of, of kind of macho kind of culture. People wouldn't know that you actually how you're feeling can actually be helped, and that there's actually things that can be done to make a difference. And they and if they did know, they wouldn't know what the pathway is. So I think having a clear pathway and having it clear that there are some things that actually specifically can be done, and don't just involve just talking about how you feel. You know, I think uh, people will be motivated to to do that, but they need to know that they're not going to lose their jobs or
0: Oh, I think that's nailed um, one of the critical points in in the whole process of of you know normalising the reactions to to what people have and and for, for the you know the, the workplaces and, and the organisations to um, be really mind mindful of the need to surround people with that with that sort of concept, I guess, because. It, And it's, I mentioned before, it's why I'm, you know, doing the podcast so that people can learn, well, there are actually treatments out there and they can really help. Yeah. And I should access them (laughs) Um, because, you know, the number of times people say, well, they threw the EAP card at me and, um, but I never rang them. Mm -hmm. And so no intervention occurs. And uh, um, so any final comments, Laura? So look, I... I, I learn, I'm i learning so much from these conversations <laughs> about um, just things that, are, you know, I'm learning a lot. And yeah. any sort of final... Um, well, just, or,
1: one thing I was thinking of is that, Tom, um, they... I mean, often the kind of lay person's way of dealing with those terrible situations in the kind of workplaces you're talking about is to go out and get drunk, you know? Yes. And the thing is, Alcohol, so in terms of what happens in your brain, if you face something very disturbing and upsetting, if you go to to home and you have a few nights of really good sleep, there's a very good chance that a fair bit of that is going to get washed out in your REM sleep and you're going to be okay. But if what you do is go out and get drunk, then you won't have very good REM sleep and actually... A certain amount of PTSD is probably because people use the wrong solution of getting drunk, which means that their body doesn't actually have the mechanism to wash out that trauma and that they're stuck with it. So I think just even education about what to do that day or that evening if you are faced with that, that kind of thing. Uh, and similarly, uh, I don't know how it would work in, in, with the police, but uh, with sexual assault survivors, if someone is sexually assaulted, if they go to a hospital and they're given um, a beta blocker for the for the fir- within the first twelve hours, they're much less likely to have PTSD. Yeah, so that's kind of weird. But you know, similarly, there there's probably uh, reasons or, or there's probably a, a way in which that could be generalized to some of what first responders go through if they see something really awful that is likely to traumatize them. Then having the beta block, what it does is it stops the adrenaline reaction, which right. means which which means then you need the adrenaline reaction to get PTSD. So if you don't have the adrenaline reaction, then you're not going to get PTSD.
0: Well, so is that something that um, is uh, people are aware of as a you know as a as a way of intervention or?
1: Um... Uh, uh, some people are aware of it. Not enough people are aware of it. I know. No. I know some doctors and psychiatrists that aren't aware
0: of it. You know, Laurie, I'd just be really interested in some comments. You know, I see a lot of people that will talk about, um, you know, they see the person's face, or um, that the, the trauma comes back to them in, in um, either dreams or in, um, in in all sorts of different ways. Um, does, does the therapy that you do with people help to minimise or or um, to alter that that, that process?
1: Yeah, well, the nightmares are happening because the memory is is unresolved. So you you know, although it feels awful to have nightmares, it's really your brain trying to do it. It's your brain trying to solve it for you, right? And so it mm-hmm. feels awful, but you wake up and you it happens over and over again. They, so if you can process the memory, then the person stops having the nightmares. So the nightmares cease because the memory itself is is no longer. Painful
0: and activated. So, so, so that's sort of in a way the brain's trying to to do that, um, but isn't needs
1: help. Yeah, needs
0: some help. Laurie, I I know um, you know. Do, is there a network of um, you know therapists that you've trained? Um, you know, and I know it's hard to get an appointment with anybody at, at the moment, but um, are there people? that um is there a list of RET practitioners, or um, if somebody saw well, I really would like to try that. I mean, how would they go about trying to access a therapist?
1: Yeah, well, they could send uh, me an email through my website, and we would give them, put them onto the list, or send them a list. Oh, yeah,
0: there are list. Right. Oh, well, yeah. that'd be that'd be great be because I them. think that um you know I think there'll, there'll be a lot of interest yeah. and because people are so tormented by, you know, those sorts of experiences. And um, and I think, as you mentioned, you know, we'd really very likely would like to be relieved of them as quick as possible and... You know, so it's just a a message of great hope. Mm -hmm. And uh I've never forgotten sitting with a a woman, a correction officer years ago, she said, I'm sick of this anxiety shit. (laughs) I'm really sick of it. I just wanna be be over it and and of course everybody does, you know, you wanna get your life back and um so I can't can't thank you enough for sharing your experiences and um, and and then if people can contact you to get that list, uh, that's a, a pathway. Yep. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me on this latest episode of Trauma from the Frontline. If you would like to get in touch with me or if you have any comments or questions regarding this episode, please feel free to email me at bruce at au. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Trauma from the Frontline. If you are enjoying this series, please make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you find this information valuable, we ask that you rate the show five stars. It really helps the show grow and reach a larger audience. Until the next episode, please take care. If this episode has raised any issues for you, free counselling is available through your organisation's employee assistance provider, Lifeline on 131 114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636.